0: I don't know of a song that would have been more appropriate to lead into our sermon today than that song, because it speaks to what Christ has accomplished for us by His blood, certainly, but also as it speaks of His reconciling us to His Father, and that now we are able to come to Him and approach Him by what Christ has done for us. The glories of that are incomprehensible, although the Scriptures help us to understand it in some measure. And uh, Hebrews has uh, really been laboring for some time to help us understand this. Now, uh, as you make your way to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, which Ben read for us a moment ago, we've been saying for a while that this is the theological heart of this letter. What Hebrews is really about is what this author is writing about over these chapters. Now, depending on how you outline Hebrews determines how many chapters we're speaking about. Some people would say the section begins in chapter 3, some people would say middle of chapter 4, some people say about chapter 8. However you want to look at it, this is the argument right here, that Christ is the effectual and eternal high priest of the new covenant, and that He is greater than the old covenant. His covenant is greater than the old covenant, and His priesthood is greater than the old priesthood. We've been hearing this for quite some time, and uh, we mentioned this last Sunday, but many people say, well, this is so repetitive And maybe we wonder why. Think of the context of the original letter and you'll have your answer. The Holy Spirit is inspiring an author to write a letter to Christians who are supposed to know everything this letter says, to understand it and the reason for which they fled to Christ. And now they're saying because of worldly pressure, they're going to leave Christ and return to the old. And the question is, can you do that? It's pretty clear where our author stands, right? No, you cannot. You cannot return to the part when you have the whole. You can't return to the shadow when you have its fullness. You cannot return to the type when you have the antitype. And that to do so means you never had the fullness. You never had the reality. You never had the antitype, what it's fulfilled in. You never were amongst us. If you leave, he says, it will make clear to us this, that you were never among us. So what does that mean? That's the very line of life and death, isn't it? What you'd be revealing, our author says, is that you are not a Christian, that you were never truly believing in Christ because at the first bump in the road you fled from Christ and said, we'll go back to the Levitical sacrifices and we'll go back to temple, we'll go back to which was standing in that day, we'll go back to that. And the author says, you can't. Because all that was a road map pointing to Christ. Christ pointing to Christ. Now that should sound familiar to you if you've been here for a while, right? That's what we've been talking about for a very long time. But this author is passionate because he's speaking to people who he feels are in danger of making this very error. An error that would say very much the condition of their soul not for the good. So all of this, he says, is what we need to recognize. That the scriptures of old were pointing forward to Jesus. The Torah and Moses was pointing to Jesus. David was pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, His Son. He was saying the prophets were all pointing to Jesus. Now we've heard all of that, but it's important for us to recognize this. If you publicly renounce your faith in Christ, you show you never truly were with Christ. You never were truly of Christ. You were never among us truly. So if there's an urgency and a repetitive nature to this letter, it's because the stakes are high. Hear this. Hear this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's like a, a doctor. He was a doctor himself before he became a preacher. He said it's like a doctor wanting to grab the lapels of a patient and say, Do you not hear what I'm telling you? If you don't do something about this, you'll die. In the same way, this preacher, this author of this letter... Inspired by the Holy Spirit is saying, listen and count the cost before you walk away because the cost is eternal judgment. So that brings us to chapter 10, which is, if you will, the summation. Uh, This is the last sermon, if you will, in this entire chain of sermons dealing with the high priesthood of Christ. He's going to move into another warning. We'll see next Sunday, or probably the next Sunday, we're going to look at what he says about uh, attending the, the Fellowship of Believers next Sunday. But he'll come to a warning. Take this seriously, he'll say again. And then he'll say, what you really need is faith. And we won't go to chapter 11 this year. That's going to be our bulk of next year, chapter 11. But chapter 11's about faithfulness. About the, the ordinary men and women that God has raised up to His glory. And what has set them apart has been their faith, not their talent not their abilities, but how God has used them because they were faithful. And so we'll be looking at that next year. But as we think about this text today, let's see how he brings it together. There's going to be a lot that's familiar to us. Yes, you shouldn't be surprised in that. But he's going to add some things, some, some proofs and some uh, arguments from Scripture that are important for us to hear and to think about. And so I want us to look at it again. I'm going to read the text one more time. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you do not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had before said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Amen. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, an argument recapped. Second of all, a scriptural proof. And third, a glorious standing. So as we begin into the text this morning, we want to recognize, of course, that we've been looking at these couple of chapters we've been looking at this summer and they fit into a, a form of a larger section of Hebrews we've been looking at through last year as well with a lot said about types and anti-types, shadows and realities or full, fulfillments, all these things. And, and we just mentioned them a moment ago that all of this is what the Old Testament is. It's a book that points us to Jesus. This is told to us in many ways. We've said them over and over again. The end of the law is Christ, Paul says in Romans. Meaning the purpose or the goal, the aim of the law is to point us to Jesus. I don't think he just means the Ten Commandments. He means the law, the books of Moses. But I think he would also say the end of the history books, the end of the prophets. It's all Jesus. It's reality. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming. So what it shows us is then that there is a purpose to the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is not the fulfillment. It is not the fullness. And we need to recognize that and say it over and over again. Now the argument of Hebrews is that this is not a failing in God. The Old Testament didn't fail to do what we might have hoped it would do because it simply God messed up somewhere along the line. God is perfect. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. That isn't the answer. The answer is God never intended the Old Testament to be His final word. He never intended it to be the way He redeemed human beings. It pointed to the way He would do it. It showed us many principles and told us many important things. But it was never the end itself. Never the end itself. One commentator was speaking of these shadows and these types of the Old Testament and how they point to Christ and he kind of spoke of it in this way they're like road signs. We all have been on trips, right? We know about road signs. Uh, When I was a kid, we would go every year to visit family in Nashville. And the real thing I looked forward to was not so much the family visit, although I realized that was important. It was Opryland, right? When we'd go to Nashville, we'd go to Opryland. And so as we were going to Nashville, I would see those signs. And the number of miles till Nashville kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And that told me we're getting closer and closer and closer. That's what a road sign does. It makes sure you're on the right way, and it tells you how far to your destination. That's what the Old Testament did. It gave us details of what God was doing, what He would do, why we needed it, how it would be all summed up in the Messiah. All that is what the Old Testament did. It was like a road sign. And what this author is arguing about is the road sign is not the destination. You don't see a sign that says Nashville, 45 miles, and pull over and stop there and say, hey, we're here, kids. Look, it says Nashville. You recognize that it points to your destination. It isn't the destination. The way the commentator I'm speaking about worded this, Hewell Jones, he said this, a signpost has value to a traveler returning home, but it is not the same as being home with a meal on the table. There's a difference there, isn't there? One is a sign, one is the reality. We recognize the difference here. The Old Covenant was like a signpost that pointed us to the fulfilled work of Christ. Why we needed it and what it is and what we receive from it. All that is given to us in the Old Testament. And yet what the author is saying is you've missed that relationship. You took the signpost to be the destination. And if you really want to make a more exacting comparison, what he's saying is... You made it all the way to Nashville and then left Nashville to go back and camp at the sign 45 miles away. How foolish would that be to get to the place you were going and say, no, this isn't it. Let's go back to that sign where we read Nashville or whatever your destination is. It's foolishness. It's folly. And he says, listen, you need to recognize this to reach the destination of the Scriptures, which pointed to Christ, and then to say, I'm leaving Christ and going back to the road sign, is foolishness, this author is saying. And what's worse than that, it's worse than ridicule or being ridiculous. It brings judgment. It brings judgment because it's spiritually deadly for the reason that we've been saying for some time. The law is the shadow. It's the shadow of good things to come. Look at what our author says right there in the very first verse. If you wonder of the relationship, the law is the shadow of the good things to come, but it is not the good thing to come. It is the road sign, not the destination. It's not the very image of those things. It's not the exact thing that you're looking for. And so he tells us something. All the things that were incorporated in that Old Testament system are not the end. Those those sacrifices in that system that were offered continually could never do the ultimate end that God was pointing to, which was to do what? To redeem a people. They could never actually redeem a people. Why? Well, we could see in this, he says that those sacrifices were never sufficient to take away sins. Is that not what verse 4 says? For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. We've been dealing with this. There was a if you will atonement offered on Yom Kippur for the people generally but there were limitations to that they were but for a time and they purged the camp in some way externally that they might remain in the land but it did not cleanse their conscience it did not cleanse from intentional sin it didn't do everything and the author says you know that's the case why because they continued to offer him that's a repeated argument that he makes If it had ever been enough, they could have stopped offering them, but it was never enough. And they realized it was never enough. They never said, oh, the the Torah tells us we need to continue to offer these sacrifices. Why? We're not sinners. We've been purged by last year's offering. No, they recognized it. It was never enough. They were never right with God in their own standing. And Arthur says all of this is pointed to in the Old Testament system, which said, You need this operating over and again, day by day, year by year. All these machinations and ministries of the temple must continue if you are going to be able to stay in the land and if you are going to uh, continue to function as the Lord's people. But they didn't do the ultimate thing. They didn't cleanse our conscience. They didn't make us right with God in standing, in standing. And this is why the author says they could not fully atone If they could, Christ wouldn't have needed to come, and you wouldn't have needed sacrifice year after year after year. Now, again, if you just look at verses 1 through 4, that's his argument. For would they not have ceased to be offered? If they could have done it, why continue to offer them? Why just spill blood year after year after year? This is part of the argument that we find in the Old Testament. Does this please God, the endless slaughter of animals? Sacrifice and offering do not please him, it says in the Old Testament. And so we need to recognize that what he's saying is these are signs, types, pointing to the one sacrifice that is needed, that we would recognize our need of it when it is offered. So again, he tells us this. The Old Testament system symbolized by the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient. And it's important because it reminds us that there was a need for a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. This has been saying over and over again, right? It's the message of Hebrews. It's the message of Hebrews. He is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the one who by His blood can inaugurate this new covenant, the everlasting covenant. Only in Him can this be done. For He is the only one who can do it. He has perfect blood. He is the spotless Lamb of God. Now this is what Abraham was promised. When Abraham is going to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, Isaac says, where is the the lamb to be offered? And he says, the Lord will provide the lamb. Now we see later in that sacrifice when the angel of the Lord halts Abraham, we see the Lord provide an animal for sacrifice, but it isn't a lamb, it's a ram caught in a thicket. That is a type of the Lamb that would be offered by God for sinners, the perfect Lamb of God, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So my friends, all of this was to teach us that God would provide the sacrifice that we needed. It wouldn't be something that that earthly high priests would do, but God Himself would provide it. And our author will go further to show you that that's always what's been promised. And that brings us to our second point this morning as we continue in the text. Because we want to see here a scriptural proof. The author of Hebrews recognizes that we might say, "Well, all this is interesting, and and you know, maybe you're making a decent argument here, but but where is there scriptural proof of anything you're saying? Now, we would argue that the entire letter has been full of scriptural proof. How many Old Testament passages has the author gone back to point to? All along the way, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, you can just go down the list. He has gone through Scripture after Scripture to say, if you miss this, it's because you weren't reading carefully. Or maybe you didn't understand it in the first place. But over and again, it's been clearly given to you so that once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is what Luther said when Luther... Uh, was reading Romans and wrestling with what it meant that the righteousness of God is revealed. And he says, this is a terrible thing because God's righteousness means judgment, but Paul speaks of it as a good thing. How can I wrestle with this and understand it? He finally came to it when he was reading the Greek text. He said, he's not speaking of my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. I don't stand before God in my righteousness. I stand before God in Christ's righteousness. That's the good news. If I stand in my righteousness, all is lost. If I stand in Christ's perfect righteousness, all is gained. In the same way, he said when he went back to then read the Old Testament, it was like a new book, like a completely new book that he had never read before. Because he saw these details everywhere of God's grace, of God providing what we needed, everywhere. In the same way, our author says, once you see Christ in these scriptures, you can't miss it. Even things like the tabernacle. When you go back and read more carefully and realize that God gave Moses a pattern after which to fashion that tabernacle, and you realize that what he's saying is, it's a earthly representation of the heavenly sanctuary, you can't ever read that scripture the same way again. That's what he's saying. And in the same way, he says, okay, if you want further proof, I'll give you further proof at this moment that the sacrificial system was never the end in itself. It was to teach you of what you needed, that you're a sinner and that you need atonement that can only come by way of blood, but that the blood of bulls and goats was never enough. And if it isn't enough, and it's God's purpose to atone for his people, that it must mean intuitively there's a better sacrifice coming. So if we understood that, we'd recognize in proportion all these things. But he says you missed it. But if you want proof, then let's go back to the Old Testament a little bit and let's think about this. Now here's a a passage we bring up all the time. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is a passage in which God tells the people of Israel, stop going to temple. Stop trampling my courts. Stop offering sacrifice after sacrifice. They're becoming abysmal to me. Stop praying to me, God says, for I'll no longer hear your prayers. I can't think of anything that should frighten us more than to think about God saying that. Stop bothering me. Now what does he mean here? You're coming to the temple and you're running through the machinations and the procedures, but that's all it is. It's external rights. There's no inward faith involved. There's no realizing that when you offer these sacrifices, it's supposed to be grotesque in a sense that you would recognize the penalty and price of sin, the cost of sin. Instead, Israel began to say, hey, look, I can do whatever I want so long as I go to temple and offer the right sacrifices. It's like a a medium of exchange. I pay off my sin debt by going through these motions. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says it never was. It was never the end in itself. It was never a means by which we could be atoned for perfectly. It was pointing to your need of Christ. And so the toy was sent in that way would be looked at completely different, wouldn't it? If you realize that these were to show you your sinfulness, your depravity before God, God's holiness and the need of blood to atone for your sins, and the fact that you have to run through these regularly means it's never enough. That should lead us instantly to realize that there's something better coming. So we have Isaiah chapter 1 in which God says that that they're bringing him displeasure. These sacrifices are bringing him displeasure. Then we come to Psalm 51. This is a famous psalm, isn't it? David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, cries out to God for forgiveness. And he says something interesting at the end of that psalm. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are something different. In other words, if I could go down to the temple right now, God, and just offer up some animals, and this would all be dealt with and done. I could do that, but that's not what you want, God. That's not learning the lesson of sacrifice. No, what you really want, David says, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. David recognized that When we sin and we go to the temple to to offer up the sin offering, it ought to be with a contrite heart and spirit that we would say, we are sinners, God, we have failed. And I recognize that this offering isn't sufficient. But I have faith that you will, in your time, bring forth the right sacrifice. That's what it means over and over when it says that Abraham believed in Christ's day or looked forward to it and rejoiced in it. I don't know how much of Christ's day he understood, but he recognized that God would provide that lamb. That He would provide this seed through whom all the nations would be blessed. That God in His time would do it. And whatever light Abraham had in faith, he looked forward to it. Now, my friends, we can go to more texts. God Himself says this. Hosea 6.6. He says, For it is our mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, he's the one that demanded those offerings. But you see, they're with a purpose. He doesn't want the sacrifice or offering itself. He wants what it's supposed to make us realize that we come before him with a contrite heart and spirit. Amos 5, 21 and 22. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard Your fattened peace offering. Now, this was to a generation very much like Isaiah's, right? In fact, they were contemporaries. Amos a little bit earlier, I believe. But he says the same thing. Don't just keep bringing these sacrifices as if somehow that deals with these terrible, wicked things that you're doing. No, when these were offered, they were supposed to be done in faith. That the sacrifice pointed forward to what God would do by His grace. So we see this message over and over again. Do not look at the sacrificial system as the end itself. It was a lesson to teach you what you would need. Now God rejects this because it, is never, it was never His will that the Old Testament system would do this. I, I quote Galatians 2.21 often, but it's Paul's argument. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness come by law, Christ died in vain. In other words, if we could get righteous by the temple system and the law that gave it to us, Christ didn't need to come. He didn't need to die. But it was always God's plan that those things would point, be signposts to point to Jesus. Now here's the interesting thing. Our author uses none of those texts. None of those texts. Those are texts I think he thinks that we would think about as people who know the scriptures. Hebrew Christians in his day. But he does turn to a different text. He turns to Psalm 40. And I brought my Septuagint, because he's quoting from the Septuagint. If you know what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, In the days of the New Testament, if most people were reading from an Old Testament, it was from a Septuagint. It was translated into Greek because most people were Greek-speaking. And if you go back and read your Hebrew-translated text for Psalm 40, it won't match up very well. Because he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is slightly different in its translation, but it's important to recognize what he argues here in quoting this. He says, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. We've heard this over and over this morning, haven't we? But listen to what he says here. Oh, by, by the way, first of all, let me say this Psalm 40 is a Psalm of David. And David throughout it is speaking about the grace of God that is needed. He says here that he needs deliverance that only God can offer by His great grace. He says, only God, God alone can deliver me from the miry pit that I'm in. So this is a word of the need of God's grace. And yet as author deals with this text, he says those weren't really the words of David. David wrote them, but David was prophesying the word of the Savior. The word of the Lord, of even Jesus Christ. Now this happens over and over again, doesn't it? Psalm 110 is the exact same thing, that David in some sense is prophesying certain things. And and here we come to to this one where he says that when he came into the world, he doesn't mean David, he doesn't mean when David was born, he means when Christ was born, when Christ's incarnation occurred, Christ said this. So the words of David are now the words of Christ, sacrifice and offering you did not desire what did God desire? A body you've prepared for me. Do you see what he's saying? The Old Testament sacrifices, the bulls, the goats, the earthly lambs, the doves, they were never enough. God didn't take pleasure in them. They were an object lesson to point us to the sacrifice that we actually needed. And God Himself provided that sacrifice. How? By preparing a body for Christ. Now, this is a a way of speaking to the miracle of the Incarnation. We know this is a creative miracle. This wasn't a, a natural thing in one sense, right? The, the Spirit uh, overshadowed Mary, and she conceived this child by the power of the Spirit. We recognize this is a miraculous thing that happened here, and the Bible makes this clear that, that God, the Father, prepared this body for Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, the answer was never to be found in bulls and goats but in the sacrifice that Christ is. The sacrifice that God intended. The sacrifice that God appointed. The sacrifice that God by His power put into this world through the incarnation of Christ. He says, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Again, we hear this. But then he says this, I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. To do your will, O God. What is the author saying? Jesus, these are are the words of Christ, written by David. He says this, You didn't want the sacrifices. You prepared a body for me, and now I have come. And I have come to do all that is written of me in the volume of the book. What is that? The Old Testament. Everything that was promised, everything that was revealed, everything that was recorded, I have come now to do this. And what is that, he says? To do your will, O God. What is the will of God? What has He been working to do through all this revelation? Luther worded it this way, that God is in Christ undoing what was done in Adam. That's a way of saying that God's will is to redeem people. That Christ came in service to that goal, to that end. That God was bringing Christ into the world to save sinners. That's how Paul words it. Two safe sinners. And Christ says, I came to do your will, O God. Now we can see many places in the Scripture where this is made clear that Christ came as the messianic uh, figure promised in Isaiah, promised in so many places in the Old Testament. He came according to His Father's plan and His Father's will. He freely came and did it. In no way do we want to diminish Christ. We're just recognizing that in this earthly messianic work, He was serving the will of His Father. Now, if we just continue forward for a moment, we want to recognize that all of this, our author says, is found in the Old Testament. That there were sacrifices that were not enough, that God brought the sacrifice that was enough into the world, and that Psalm 40 proves it because it contains the words of Christ where He declared it. Now, that's what the author is saying. If you wonder about that, he uses the next few verses to exposit what he just quoted. And to say, here's exactly what it means, that God has come into the world, Christ, the second person of Trinity, to do the will of the Father. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy. That's what sanctified means. We have been made holy by what Christ did for us. Now, we want to quickly go to our final point Because if we see it's there in the Old Testament, we need to recognize that there's something glorious here for us, a glorious standing. This is the point the author wants us to realize. Because we've been seeing all along, as he's been addressing these issues, he's been addressing them, if you will, toward God. He's saying that God declared there'd be a high priest. It's Jesus. God declared there must be a better sacrifice. It's Jesus. God declared that there must be a priesthood like unto Melchizedek. That's Christ. All of it's been addressed to what God is doing. But now he wants us to close this section by realizing why we ought to be glad for what Christ has done. Now, it should be obvious to us if we know biblical theology, but he puts it here. He says, we've spoken about this. You realize this. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which cannot take away sins. This means if you were under the Old Covenant system, the Old Testament System, You recognize this reality. You're in a system that offered blood continually. Daily sacrifices, sin sacrifices, yearly sacrifices on the important days. And it was never enough. He says, that's not where we are now. That's not where we are now. Look at it. But this man, Jesus, that we see this often in great scriptural passages. But, but now, right? This man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. If you want to know if one sacrifice is enough, he proof texts the Old Testament again. He's referencing the Psalms again, isn't he? That uh, he entered into the glories of heaven and he sat down at the right hand of his Father. And there he sits enthroned. He doesn't sit just because he's king. He is king. But he sits because as a high priest, his work is complete. He enters in, offers the blood in this mysterious fashion that we've read about in Hebrews, and he sits down. Now I ask you, what earthly high priest ever sat down in the Holy of Holies? It never happened. It never happened. No high priest would deign to sit down in the Holy of Holies. You went in there, you did the work God called you to do, You put the blood on with hyssop onto the Ark of the Covenant. You purified, if you will, that inner sanctum, and you got out as quickly as you could. No one could sit down, and no one would have anyway, because guess what? I've got to go out. I've got other responsibilities, and I'll come back in in a year. It's not what Jesus does. He went into the heavenly tabernacle, if you will, the heavenly sanctuary, and He sat down. His work is complete. Now, he ministers there in this sense. He intercedes on our behalf. But Arthur wants us to realize something very important. That's what we looked at last Sunday. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. We said last week he's not going to stay there forever, right? He's coming again. He will leave that Holy of Holies. Just as the high priest went in for seven, eight minutes, and then he came back out and the people saw him and We're relieved that the work had been done for another year. Jesus went into that holy sanctum, that place in the presence of God, sits there fully enthroned as our King and High Priest, and He stayed there. And He will stay there until He returns. And He'll return when all of His enemies are made His footstool, as God promised. For by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Why don't we need yearly sacrifices because by this one sacrifice, we've been perfected. Amen. We've been made holy. We've been made righteous. Now, that doesn't mean that we live in this world holy or righteous, right? We, we're called to be holy as God is holy, but we realize we're sinners. We're struggling with sin. We're being sanctified. We're putting sin to death in the body. At the same time, we realize in another sense, we are declared righteous even now at our justification. We are righteous before God. Our sin is taken as far as the east is from the west. And that's what our author says. That by this one offering we have been perfected, made complete before God. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses this to us. How? Because he said this through the prophet Jeremiah. Again, another proof text he's used before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and In my minds I will write them so the law is put in our hearts and on our minds. And then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Well, if God is not remembering our sins and our lawless deeds any longer, then there is no need to continue to offer sacrifices. The job is done. This is what Christ meant when he said, It is finished. The one sacrifice that atones for our sin has been offered. There is no need for others. Now, as we sin, are there things that we're supposed to do? To repent of those sins, of course. But we recognize the offering, the atonement has been made. He closes by saying this. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. If there's no more sin to be atoned for, there's no longer a need for atonement, right? That's what, it's a basic logical thing. If the debt has been paid, there's no reason to continue pay it, to look for ways of paying it. It's been done. It's been accomplished. We, before God, stand in Christ Jesus. And I think what it's reminding us of is this. If we say it isn't enough, then we're saying Jesus isn't enough. So that's the problem the author of Hebrews is saying. He says if you leave Jesus to go back to what was before, you're saying Christ isn't enough. That's your testimony. And if that's your testimony, you are not His. You never were His. We've said this many times. He's not arguing for a loss of faith. He's arguing for the revelation you never had faith because God's people would never say that of Christ. They would never walk away in that way saying Jesus is simply not enough. Christ is enough. And this author says to this people, hear me, all of Scripture, not just this letter, not just the letters you may have of the New Testament, all of Scripture reveals this truth. Christ is sufficient. He is the one atoning sacrifice for all time for the people of God. Mm -hmm. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. And if you do that, my friends, you have life everlasting. That's the reason we can have joy. It's because what the author says, I don't have to worry about tomorrow if I stumble in some small way. I should fight stumbling. We are not giving a license for sinning. We recognize what it says. For the people of God, we stand righteous before God. Righteous before God. And for that reason, we have reason to rejoice. Amen.